Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is episode 158. I hope you enjoyed my two-parter with David Isaacs. And this week, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk music, and specifically the various concerts that I have seen over the years. It's one thing when people get together, you know, they always discuss uh, what acts did you see and what was your favorite concert, that type of thing. And uh, I have had a chance to go to concerts now for many, many years, many decades, God. Uh, so I thought it might be kind of fun just to name drop a little bit and tell you some of the concerts that I attended. And one of the first ones was at my high school. Everyone is always asked, so what's the first concert you attended? Well, for me, going to Taft High in Woodland Hills, California, they had this offer where if you bought a student activity card for $5, you got into the athletic events, and and this was the big incentive. There was going to be sometime during the course of the year a concert during school meaning you would get to miss a period of class. It was worth $5 just to miss a period of class. So I, along with a number of other people, bought student activity cards, and we went into the Taft multipurpose room, and there were the Beach Boys with Brian, because this was early in the 60s, and, yeah, we saw the Beach Boys in concert in our high school. How cool is that? Then in like 1966, 1967, I saw the Ike and Tina Turner Review at the Chatsworth Bowl. (laughs) Yeah, not exactly huge stadium venues. The Chatsworth Bowl. And I saw Tina Turner and like my hormones just went nuts. I mean, I had never seen anything like that. She was so sexy. That was such a great show. And she put on a great show, even though it was at a bowling alley. And 50 feet away, uh, people were bowling. But uh, that made a huge impression on me. There was a theater in the round in Woodland Hills called the Valley Music Theater. It looked like just a, a big white shell kind of like one of the uh, terminals in JFK, like the TWA terminal at JFK, very mid-century modern. And they used to have concerts from time to time. And I went there a number of times on dates. And the concerts were probably 5 to $10 to get in. And I saw the association there. I saw Gary Lewis and the Playboys. They had only one hit at the time, this diamond ring. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is a one-hit wonder. 
these guys are not going anywhere. A group called Harper's Bazaar. I thought, no, okay, this is a group for the future. They lasted 11 minutes. The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Yes, I saw the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band in concert. Also a group called Buffalo Springfield. And that was Stephen Stills and Neil Young and some of the great music of the later 60s in L.A. I saw the Buffalo Springfield. We used to have a thing at the Hollywood Palladium called the Teenage Fair. And this lasted for about five or six years. And basically it was kind of a state fair type of thing, except all of the exhibits were teen-related. And there were concerts throughout the day and night. And obviously the later you got into the evening, the better the attractions were. And the Teenage Fair opened like at noon, so it was like noon to midnight. And I remember going one afternoon, and it was like 1 o'clock, and I went to see this couple, Sonny and Cher. And this guy was wearing a fur vest, had a huge nose, looked like Italian Barney Rubble, and Morticia, this skinny, dark-haired woman. And they were singing, and there must have been 40, 50 people. You know, we were kind of just milling around watching these two clowns. And there, too, I'm thinking, (laughs) that's the only time we're ever going to see these people. I also recall taking a date to the Teenage Fair one night. So, again, the attractions were better. And she was very excited because in this tent setup. There was a rock group called the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. And they were your basic loud rock and roll band. But their shtick was they had all of these projections, all of these kaleidoscopes, and it was like a, a big LSD trip. And I remember my date, who was kind of a knothead, she was so into this. Like, oh, my God, this is just so far out. I'm looking around like, you've got to be kidding. West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. I saw The Doors and Jefferson Airplane in concert at the Birmingham High School football stadium. Here's what I remember about that. Jefferson Airplane was fantastic. Gracie Slick was amazing. And the Doors came out, and they were the big headliners. They were terrible. It's because Jim Morrison was on complete autopilot. And there were some nights when he was just electric, And there were other nights when he was holding on to the microphone stand, just trying not to fall. He was just kind of mumbling everything, you know. He was terrible. Years later, I had a chance to meet Gracie Slick and spend some time with her, which was really cool. She's a great lady. And I said, do you happen to remember that And without prompting, she said, oh, God, Morrison was so wasted. It was so fucking terrible that night. So I was like, okay, (laughs) it wasn't just me, and it wasn't just faulty memory. 
I did go to the Sunset Strip in the late 60s, and I did go to some of those clubs, the Whiskey, London Fog, places like that. I don't even remember the names of the club. Its Boss was one of them, and uh, Gazzari's on the Strip, I think. I don't know. And, and I saw various acts, but I don't remember who they were. So I, I couldn't tell you. For all I know, I saw Eric Clapton. For all I know, I saw Arthur Lee in love. But at the time, it's just a parade of these groups. And I'm sure 90% of them went on to do nothing. And their members are now accountants. Back then, they were trying to make it. Uh, they were trying to be the next birds. Uh, so I may have seen some great people. I have no idea. Likewise, back in the late 60s, a fad in Los Angeles and in other cities as well was a thing called love-ins and sit-ins. You would go to a public park and there would be bands that would be playing and people passing around joints and girls handing out flowers and that kind of shit. There too, I went a few times to Reseda Park to a love-in, and there were bands playing. I have no idea. <laughs> they, they could be the greatest bands in rock and roll history. Ginger Baker could have been there, and Eric Clapton, and God knows who else. I have no idea. I was just trying to hustle girls. I saw Three Dog Night and Can't Heat, at the sports arena, Three Dog Night was great and Canned Heat. Again, you have to be a real fan of 60s music to even know who the hell I'm talking about. They had like one or two hits and their lead singer had this really high kind of whiny voice. And I remember thinking at the time, how do these guys get a record deal? It's like of all the bands that are out there and there were a million of them back then, how does this guy get a, a deal, much less uh, a hit? And they did have a couple of hits uh, going up the country and a few others. But Three Dog Night, they were the real thing. I mean, Chuck Negron had a great, great voice. I saw Steppenwolf in concert. And what was so significant about that is one of the members named Mike Monarch went to junior high with me. And he and I were friends, and he would, like, come over to the house, and we would listen to records. You know, we would be listening to Shirelle's records and Crystal's records and Motown records and Neil Sedaka records and Bobby V records and all kinds of Beach Boys and, and stuff. And, you know, who knew that a guy sitting there listening and bopping along to Leslie Gore records was going to wind up a member of Steppenwolf. I saw James Brown and the Fabulous Flames, hardest recommended in show business at the Shrine Auditorium in downtown Los Angeles. And the Shrine Auditorium is huge. It's this giant cavernous venue across the street of the University of Southern California. There were not many white kids in attendance that night. But I have to tell you, 1968, 1969, I did not feel uncomfortable in any way 
being there. It was just a large group of people who loved that music, and we had a great time. James Brown put on a fantastic show. He was the hardest working man in show business. In 1968, this was the only time I became a concert promoter. I was at UCLA, and I was involved with the campus radio station, KLA, and we decided over that summer that it would be fun to kind of relaunch our station when classes began in the fall of 1968 by hosting a concert. The top radio stations were always hosting the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and the Rolling Stones, that type of thing. And we wanted to sound like a big time radio station. So we wanted to organize a concert. And we talked to various managers and that sort of thing. And we got the grassroots to agree to perform for us. The grassroots at the time had a number of hits. They were a Los Angeles garage band and they had quite a few hits in the late 60s. And they had just come out with a record called Midnight Confessions. And we said, okay, let's call the radio stations and just keep requesting it over and over again so that they'll keep playing that song and it will help promote the group. And the concert was going to be on the roof of a parking structure, parking structure eight at UCLA. So... We did, and I spent my evenings just calling radio stations over and over again, asking if they would play Midnight Confessions by the Grassroots. I remember calling KRLA, and I wasn't listening to KRLA at the time. I just had called KRLA, and then I would call KHJ, and I would call KBLA, and I would just keep rotating using different voices, etc. And I called KRLA, and I said, uh, would you play Midnight Confessions by the uh, Grassroots? And the disc jockey said, I'm playing it, asshole, and hung up the phone on me. That was, that was very delightful. We did pretty well with that concert, by the way. It was really nice. When I was a board op, which was like an engineer at KLOS in Los Angeles in the early 70s, and they were an album rock station, so I got tickets through them to see Chicago at the Hollywood Bowl. And I thought, man, this is fantastic because the seats were like third row off to the side. So you could almost touch the band. Unfortunately, to the right of me was a giant, almost two-story speaker. I can't tell you. It It just blew out everybody's eardrums for about seven rows, maybe the most uncomfortable concert I had ever seen. I was listening to the radio one day. This was like in the mid-70s. This was when I was trying to break in as a comedy writer. And I heard that Dick Clark was having some live music special that night at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. So I thought to myself, well, if they're doing a live concert... They're probably rehearsing. There might be like a dress rehearsal or something. So on a whim, a friend of mine and I just drove down to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, empty parking lot, we park our car. We just like walked into a side entrance, 
There was no security, no nothing. And we walk into the hall and there was Jerry Lee Lewis doing his act and they were rehearsing. So we just sat down in the front row and basically had a, a command performance, a concert by Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer, just for me and my friend Larry. That was a pretty cool concert. In 1975-76, I was doing weekends as a disc jockey on B100 in San Diego. And they were going to host the KISS concert. And so the program director asked if I would introduce them. And that's usually what would happen when a radio station would sponsor a concert. Uh, one or two of their disc jockeys would come out and welcome everybody and then introduce the group. So I thought, okay, that's going to be great. And and I wrote up like you know, two, three minutes of funny comedy material that I was going to lead with. Well, the group is just sitting there backstage supposed to go on at 8. It's now 8.45. And they're just sitting back there. And people now, they're like, you know, banging on things and stomping. It's like, where are they? Where are they? And I didn't know, but apparently that's what rock groups do. They were there. They were ready to go at 7.30, but they were not going to go on stage till like 9. So by the time I got out there, to introduce them, I'm standing at the microphone and and I'm looking out at this sea of 20,000 angry teenagers and this was my hilarious introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, B100 presents KISS. And I got my ass off the stage. And and I did get a huge applause from 20,000 people. And I like to think it's for me, not them. By the way, I didn't stay for the concert. I just, I, at that point, I, I split and went home. I saw Neil Sadaka make his return, his comeback at the Troubadour, which is a small club in West Hollywood. What I remember, two things. Number one, he put on a great show. And number two, he was wearing a leisure suit. And this was the 70s. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, you know, when everybody has long hair and they're all dressing like Elton John and everyone's glamming it up and you're wearing a leisure suit, uh, you're not quite there yet. But he was terrific and, uh, of course, had that huge resurgence. And he doesn't tour very much anymore, but he's in his 80s. But when he does, he still puts on a great show and he still has the voice. We saw Captain and Tennille at the Smokehouse Restaurant in the San Fernando Valley. The Smokehouse Restaurant is this old style steak and potato red booth 1950s throwback restaurant that is across the street of Warner Brothers Pictures. So for years and years, stars from Warner Brothers would 
eat at the smokehouse. In fact, I think George Clooney has said that it's like his favorite restaurant in the world. Uh, but they had a lounge there and they had music acts. And I remember taking a date and we had dinner and then there was the lounge. You could just walk in, have a drink. And there were these two people, this very pretty woman with blonde hair singing and uh, her partner, who was this guy wearing a sailor's hat and sunglasses playing the organ. And they were real good, Captain and Tennille. And it's such a unique name that it kind of, you know, stays with you. And then about a year later, there they are doing Love Will Keep Us Together. And they had the big hit of the year. One of my all-time favorite concerts was going to see Harry Chapin. Harry Chapin was more a folk singer than a rock singer. And he emerged in the early 70s, had very thoughtful songs, had a great song called Taxi. And it was a story song about a guy who drove a taxi and a woman gets in the back of the cab and she's very well to do and he's going to take her back to her home in the nice rich area of San Francisco and he realizes it's a former girlfriend and she's now at the top and he's now at the bottom. It's a very poignant song. And Harry Chapin put on great, great concerts. He was very charming, great patter, great rapport with the audience. Usually he'd be on for like three hours. And he was very involved with a world hunger organization. And he had a book of his lyrics and poetry. And at the end of every concert, he would make himself available that you could come up and either buy the book. You didn't have to buy the book, but he preferred if you bought the book. And he would autograph it for you. And he would shake your hand and say hello to you. So after performing for three hours, he would be sitting at this card table for like another hour greeting thousands of people. And he did that night after night after night. I went to see Harry Chapin probably three or four times in different venues and was never disappointed. Every time was great. And the last time that I saw him, he was at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, which is an open-air theater very similar to the Hollywood Bowl. And he had done Taxi early in his set. And then he did his encore and he had a couple of encore songs that he always did. And then the taxi music starts playing again. And we're going, what's that for? He already did taxi. So the music starts going and all of a sudden he starts singing new lyrics and we realize, oh my God, this is a sequel. 
And this was months before that song came out. And we were hearing it for the very first time. And in this version, he became a big rock star and she had a falling from grace. And so the roles were reversed. But it gave it gave me chills to hear this song. And again, it was so unexpected and such a surprise. Harry Chapin, unfortunately, died very young in an auto accident. Here's a bizarre one. There used to be a big hotel in downtown Los Angeles called the Ambassador Hotel. And they had a huge ballroom that was called the Coconut Grove. And that was like the largest nightclub in Los Angeles when nightclubs were the rage. So you're talking 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, Robert Kennedy was shot in the Coconut Grove Ballroom in 1968. Well, it was still going in 1970, and Diana Ross was performing. She had left the Supremes, and she was trying to make it as more of a Vegas-style, middle-of-the-road artist. And I don't know why, but to celebrate my grandparents' 50th anniversary, my parents bought tickets for all of us to go see Diana Ross at the Coconut Grove. I don't think my grandparents had any idea who the hell she was. And she comes out, and she had that giant afro, And I remember my grandfather looking at me like, what? (laughs) Who is this? Who is this? And she put on a very nice show, but it just seemed so bizarre to be bringing my grandparents to see Diana Ross. I saw the Manhattan Transfer any number of times. If you get a chance to see them, uh, one of their members, one of the lead members passed away, so it's not going to be the same. Uh, But They put on a great show, great harmonies. And one time at the Greek theater, they brought on a special unannounced guest, Frankie Valli, from Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. And they did this huge medley of Four Seasons hits, but with Manhattan Transfer behind him instead of three other seasons. And as good as the Four Seasons were, and as good as their harmonies were, they could not compare to the Manhattan Transfer. And all of a sudden, every Four Seasons song, with Frankie Valli singing the lead, and this was years ago, this must have been 30 years ago, so he still had the pipes, Every song sounded glorious and sounded way better than the original. I was fortunate enough to see Stevie Wonder twice. First time I saw him was at the Fabulous Forum, which is an indoor arena where the Lakers and the Kings used to play in Englewood. So there were 20,000 people there. And he put on a great show. It was during the time he had the Master Blaster albums. Great, great show. But years later, I got a chance to see him 
at the House of Blues in Los Angeles. And that's a small, intimate venue where there's no real seating. There's just a stage and this room. And everybody just stands up close to the stage. So to be able to be six, seven feet away from Stevie Wonder while he was performing, that was absolutely glorious. Another concert I saw at the forum was Bob Dylan. Terrible. Just fucking terrible. Maybe the worst concert I've ever gone to. I could not understand a word that this guy was singing. It was all, you know, like no melody, no nothing. And at one point, he was going on and on. And and I turned to my wife and I said, I think he's doing like a Rolling Stone. But you you couldn't tell. There was like no melody, no words, nothing. It was a joke. Bob Dylan concert sucked. I saw Vladimir Horowitz perform at the music center. Does that count? That Well, he's not really rock and roll, but uh, that was pretty cool. I saw Garth Brooks at the Radio and Records convention. This was an industry convention for radio and records. And it was held in Los Angeles at the Century Plaza Hotel. And they would usually have concerts as part of their big finale banquet. And Garth Brooks was going to be performing. Now, I'm not a big country music fan, and and I knew that Garth Brooks was a big deal in country music. I went, you know, okay, I'll check out Garth Brooks. The guy blew me away. Just blew me away. Within five minutes of watching Garth Brooks live, you go... I get it. I totally get it. I see the appeal. Uh, I love the music. Everything about that guy was amazing. And it's so much better when you have such low expectations. And all of a sudden, an artist comes along and just knocks your socks off. And that was Garth Brooks. The other time at the R&R convention, Lionel Richie sang... And this was like at a breakfast meeting. So Lionel Richie is like singing at 8 o'clock in the morning, probably got to bed at 3, and and he was terrible. He would like sing a song and then apologize for it. <laughs> so I did not see him uh, in his best light. I'm a huge Carole King fan, always have been. When the Tapestry album came out, I went to see her at UCLA. Never the greatest singer, but she had a certain charm and the songs were great. And she, too, had a lot of great patter with the audience. She's a lot of fun. And then a few years ago, there was a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. There was a tour around the country. It was Carole King and James Taylor. Now, I should say that James Taylor is one of my favorites, and I have seen James Taylor in concert no less than seven, eight times. Anytime there's a James Taylor concert, I'm there. I love this guy. He still has 
great, great voice. It's crystal clear. He, too, lovely stories, works so well with the audience. He's very engaging. He's got a great sense of humor. So I went to see the concert. And now it struck me, when you go to see people like James Taylor and Carole King in concert, it's like a throwback to the 60s. It's like all these people are wearing their tie-dye shirts and their long stringy hair. And you go, you know, that look wasn't that great when you were 18. Now that you're 74, you might want to try a different fashion statement. But Carol King's voice has weathered over the years, and it was made even more noticeable when she's singing with James Taylor. It might as well have been 1970 with James Taylor. That's how good he was. I saw Randy Newman in concert a couple of times, and his concerts are fun. Again, Randy's not the world's greatest singer, but the content is really terrific. He's very funny. I saw Smokey Robinson and the Quiet Storm at the Greek Theater one summer night. And when the concert was over, the PA announcer, who had like one of those real deep Soul Train kind of guy voices, was going, uh, Smoke K. Robinson and Quiet Storm. Say goodnight to Smoke K. Robinson and Quiet Storm. He's doing this like seven, eight times. We're all walking out of the venue. And he finally, he goes, uh, Say goodnight to Smoke K. Robinson and the Quiet Storm. Drive carefully, says Smoke Key Robinson and the Quiet Storm. I remember that. I don't remember much about the concert. I did see the chairman of the board. Yes, I saw Frank Sinatra in concert. Unfortunately, it was towards the end of his career. This was probably in the mid-70s. He wasn't so old that he had teleprompters on stage. He could still remember the lyrics. He couldn't hit a lot of notes, and he had gained a little weight and was kind of stuffed into the tuxedo, but it was really cool. It was really cool seeing Frank Sinatra, and when there were notes that he couldn't hit, he knew just how to slide out of them and substitute other notes, so the song still sounded great. He didn't reach for notes that he couldn't hit where you're going, ooh, oh, man, 20 years ago, God, he would have been able to nail that. Now, no. So he put on a really good show. I saw Tony Bennett a couple of times, and he's a wonder. I mean, this guy is like like 90, and I saw him. He was in his 80s, and he still had a, a great voice. I saw him by himself, and then I saw him in concert at the Hollywood Bowl a couple of years ago with Lady Gaga. And Lady Gaga was, you know, trying to do the Great American Songbook. And as opposed to Linda Ronstadt, who went through a period when she tried to do the Great American Songbook, Linda Ronstadt really studied and worked hard at it. 
and got Nelson Riddle to arrange her albums. There's a great documentary about Linda Ronstadt. I did a review of this in my blog. Uh, you got to you got to see it. It's really great. Anyway, as opposed to Linda Ronstadt, who really took this seriously, for Lady Gaga, it was clearly a novelty. It was just like clearly an act. And there was one point where they're doing a duet, and of course she would change costumes 17 times. And she's wearing this sheer see-through outfit. Not only was it clear on the giant jumbo vision boards that they had posted around the Hollywood Bowl, but you could, through the naked eye, from 200 rows back, you could see her nipples. And there she is singing with Tony Bennett. It was just creepy. It was absolutely creepy. Very early in his career, I saw Michael Buble at the Roxy on the Sunset Strip. Now Michael Buble plays giant stadiums and arenas and has this whole huge show with pyrotechnics and everything else. And back then, it was just a guy and a microphone and a small group behind him, and he sang, really terrific, and he did something at the end of the show which I thought was really cool. He put the microphone down and he sang the last song acoustically. So you could really just hear his voice. And from what I understand, because I have not been to a recent Michael Buble concert, but I hear that he still does that. Now, it's one thing in an intimate setting like the Roxy, and it's another to do that at Madison Square Garden. (laughs) But apparently he does that. Another singer who did that was Barbara Cook. Now, Barbara Cook was an amazing singer, and she passed away a couple of years ago, but she sang well into her 80s. And she great at interpreting songs, Sondheim, Broadway, Great American Songbook, jazz, just a wonderful, pure singer. And the last time I saw her in concert, it was at Cal State Northridge, and they have a lovely theater with a couple of balconies. And she sang Imagine, the John Lennon song, a cappella with no microphone, no orchestra, nothing. That, too, just absolutely gave me chills. I saw Dina Menzel at Disney Hall, loud power ballads, Adina Menzel, check. I saw, as a goof, I, I've done this a couple of times, uh, going to Vegas and seeing these glossy shows. Paul Anka. <laughs> Paul Anka at Caesar's Palace. He's probably playing Indian casinos now. I don't know. But at the time, again, with the fireworks going off and visuals and slideshows and choruses and, oh, my God, it was just so glitzy and so cheesy. And I saw Wayne Newton, who was the king 
of that at the Greek Theater. His concert was sponsored by K-Earth 101, which was the oldie station in L.A. And at the time, I knew their morning man, Dean Goss, because Dean and I were both disc jockeys together back in 1974 at KYA in San Francisco. So he invited me to this concert, and it was a a summer night, and there was going to be a stand-up comic to be the opening act. And just as the comic got out to stage, the power went out in the venue. And it was still light. Like I said, it was July, so it was going to be light for about another half an hour. And the comic just went on with his act. And you could only hear him in the first four rows. People were booing, get off the stage, what's going on? And so he leaves, and now they're trying to get all of the electricity back. So everybody is just sitting there. Half hour goes by, 45 minutes go by, and I'm there with Dean and, and his wife. And Dean had backstage passes. So he said to me, hey, you want to go backstage? I think, sure. Yeah, nothing else to do. So we go backstage and the lights come on. So everyone's going, okay, we start in three minutes. We start in three minutes. And there's all this commotion backstage. And uh, we plant ourselves right by the, the side where Wayne Newton is going to come on stage. And Wayne Newton comes out of his dressing room and he's wearing a robe over his tuxedo. And this is all happening backstage. And he throws off the robe and he is walking towards the stage and he sees me and Dean and a couple of other people who were standing against the wall along the side there. And for whatever reason, he comes up to me and he pats me on the stomach like three times and looks me in the eye and he says, go for it. I'm like, and then he turns around and he bolts onto the stage. (laughs) That was my encounter with Wayne Newton. He had waterfalls and fireworks. It was like the Orange Bowl halftime show. Uh, I went to the American Music Awards one year. I got tickets because I was doing a project that involved the record industry, and so I wanted to go see that. And so I got to see Metallica, Leanne Rimes, Tony Braxton, who wore the most revealing dress I've ever seen, and Sheryl Crow, and they literally handed out earplugs during the commercial break before Metallica came on and performed. I saw Taylor Swift at Dodger Stadium long before she was this international sensation. Back then, from time to time, they would have these concerts before ball games. She would sing four or five songs and somebody else would sing four or five songs and they would take the stage away and start the ball game. And she was one of the performers. And then 
I was at the time, I was doing Dodger talk. So I was in the press box and I then went into the press lounge and she came into the press lounge and had lunch and was just sitting there. And I was just talking to her, asking her about her career and, you know, how many gigs she played and that's that type of thing. And yeah, that, that turned out to be Taylor Swift. I saw the Rolling Stones at Dodger Stadium. And at the time, we brought my kids. My daughter was very little. She was probably uh, six or seven. She fell asleep during their set. Uh, another cheese performance we went to see was Tom Jones at Caesars Palace in 1998. Now, Tom Jones in his heyday was very sexy. And the thing is, he would perform and women would throw their panties onto the stage. Well, by 1998, they were throwing their depends. And the only reason we went was because my son, who was turning 16, thought that Tom Jones was just a great joke. And so he wanted for his 16th birthday to see Tom Jones. He was like, okay. He was playing at Caesar's Palace and we went to see Tom Jones. And uh, the guy has put on a couple of pounds since those days. And he's like stuffed into leather pants and again, depends and room keys and God knows what else. Saw Bruce Springsteen twice. Bruce Springsteen is the real deal. If you ever get a chance to see Bruce Springsteen, go. First time I saw him was 1988. I think it was the Tunnel of Love tour. I was in Syracuse, and I was broadcasting minor league baseball for the Syracuse Chiefs. During one of the rare off nights, he was performing, was Bruce Springsteen, in Los Angeles at the sports arena. I told my wife, get tickets. We'll go. And I flew across the country to see Springsteen and then took a red eye back to do the game the next day. It was worth it. He was phenomenal. Then I saw him again just a couple of years ago at the sports arena in Los Angeles. He loved the sports arena. He loved the acoustics. For whatever reason, it was a shitty old arena that was put up in like 1958. The 1960 Democratic Convention was held there at the sports arena. It has since been demolished, but he loved that old venue. And God, he put on an amazing show. I saw Darlene Love in Hairspray on Broadway. I saw Barbara Streisand at the Staples Center. That that cost a lot. Uh, she was like a million miles away. You're basically watching a TV screen. But again, great singer, rarely performs, so bucket list, Barbara Streisand. If you want to see somebody who's almost comparable but at a budget, there is this singer named Linda Etter, and she doesn't perform all that often, but she has a remarkable voice. She's an incredible singer, puts on a great show, and costs only a fraction of what Barbara Streisand charges. So if you like that kind of music and you want to see Barbara Streisand on a budget, then I would suggest seeing Linda Etter. And finally, I'm friends with Howard Kalin, who is a member of the Turtles. And every year, 
he puts together a big nostalgia tour, goes around the country. So one year I went to that. It was locally here at the Savant Theater in Los Angeles. And it was uh, the Turtles, Gary Lewis, the lead guy from Grand Funk Railroad, Mitch Ryder, the Detroit Wheels, and Chuck Negron of Three Dog Night. And the Turtles, of course. Well, Gary Lewis started off and, <laughs> again, he's just doing this bubblegum this diamond ring and everything and you know people are like uh and the audience uh, uh we were the youngest people there by 20 years same thing they're all wearing their tie-dyed shirts and their concert t-shirts from 1971 i mean it was just just like what the old home is going to look like in another 10 years and um the guy from Grand Funk, I don't remember his name, but he, he talked about the fact that he now has a pacemaker. It's like, you don't want to hear that the lead singer of the Grand Funk Railroad has a pacemaker? And these guys were all good, but not really in their prime. You know, sometimes you'll be tuning around and you'll get those uh, PBS pledge breaks where they'll have the nostalgia shows and you're seeing some of these people and you're going, oh, God, oh, God, am I that old too? It was the last nostalgia show that I will attend. And the Turtles, by the way, were excellent. So there you have it, a survey of the various venues, various concerts that I attended down through the years and hopefully 10 years from now I can do a follow-up on this podcast with all of the concerts that I see between now and then. And that will do it for this week. Again, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, Bruce and Jason Miller, Howard Hoffman, and John Wolfer. If you want to write me, I will write you back. Just email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and-